Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm talking to Professor of Economics at Chapman University, Bart J. Wilson, about his book, The Property Species. Bart and I talk about the foundations of property and just how deeply embedded that concept is into human society and human behavior. This is my interview with Bart Wilson. How old is experimental economics as like a discipline or a sub-discipline? Well, so... Vernon Smith started in the 60s running his first experiments, um, and he kind of converted all over to experimental economics by the time, by the 70s, I think. It was probably the late 80s where they started to meet for the first time as a group, um, and it was just really taking off in the 90s. It was... um, diversifying into testing game theory and looking at um, fairness and those kind of considerations, which was really new for economics. And the laboratory was a way to study that. And so uh, it really kind of came into its own in the 90s, I would I would say. But it had its roots in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It sounds like most of uh, your work in experimental econ involves virtual worlds. Is that the, the mostly what it is these days or is there or is there a lot of diversity in the field uh i would say that's actually probably rare uh okay the the virtual world part i i also kind of stumbled into um vernon smith and i were designing a class to teach kind of the basic principles of economics through experiments and reading the classical economists like adam smith and we didn't have an experiment on exchange and specialization like there were no research experiments on it. So we thought we'd build one and we wanted to see what they would build. And that was kind of the first idea of like, let's rather than really constrain the action space, let's open it up and see what they do with it. And so the virtual world is something that I kind of kept on with after that um, because it, I wanted to see what the subjects were trying to tell me. And by making the action space wider, I gave them more freedom to say, this is what we want to do and what we think it's about. Has experimental economics been hit much by replication crises, or is it pretty solid in that sense? So relative to psychology, we're faring quite well. Um, And there have been studies out there that have been tempting to look at that question. And I I don't, I think the number was 60% were replicable in uh, a major study, uh, which is much higher than psychology, but still leaving a lot of room Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the other side. That would make us not be too comfortable with that. And so uh, that has been, uh, the economists have been very responsive to trying to understand that and to be careful about those kind of questions. What kind of things do you do to be careful about something that like, like pre-registration or? Yes. So a lot of people are doing pre-registration studies. Um, I, 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 I like the idea that there's an intention to that, but there's also a sense that that what you can only learn from experiment comes out of what you started with. And that is also, I think, has its downsides because it's going to choke off ideas of branching off and following different lines. And so it's a it's a fine trade-off there of sticking to what you plan to do, but also following the question where it leads you. Uh, and you, you, you kind of have to do that as well. You mean like if you if you had started off with a certain assumption. You don't want to manipulate the experiment partway through to get the result you want, but you also don't want to 
fail to pursue an interesting question because you've pre-registered a particular methodology? Right. If you learn something new, um, you should be exploring that. In fact, that's what good science is, being surprised about what comes, what you learn from it. And in every experiment I've run, I've always been kind of surprised by some feature of it that I wasn't expecting um, to happen. And that's actually where the real learning is. So in that sense, I haven't, I personally haven't done the pre-registrations because I want to be, if I'm creating this virtual world, I'm, I want to let it take me. And the trade-off for that is I just have to be very careful when I present the experiment to make sure everyone follows how I got to where the design, the final design was. I think that's the real slippage in these studies is experimenters come in knowing a lot of things, having a I would say a feel for how stuff works and that never gets put into the paper. <laughs> and mm. so the person comes try to replicate it and they don't have that same history of what kind of what they know. And as a result, um, they might not implement something exactly the same way that's left out of the details. I've heard and, a term for that in, in different fields. I forget oh. what it is. I feel like I've heard Brian Kaplan mention something along those lines. Like you have to, you have to learn that by uh, having lunch conversations with the faculty learning yes. all the things that don't get that don't make it into the papers or the textbooks it, yeah and it, the I oral think tradition in experimental sciences that's true for a lot of things because there's a lot of details about how you run the actual procedures um from how the people show up in the room before you put them in the laboratory can matter uh which you don't see in papers uh because they're they're checking, the subjects know what's going on. They, they're getting a sense of feel what's different when they normally do it versus when they're doing it this time. And all of those kind of things could potentially matter um, depending on what you're studying. You are also in the tradition of economics and law. I am an economist who is very interested in the important foundations that law provides for economics. And in particular, also how economics uh, can inform kind of way law spontaneously arises. And so that's my interest is in kind of the foundations of law for economics. And what's the distinction between that and kind of the law and economics tradition proper? Well, law and economics would be about the cost and benefits kind of of analysis of laws, um, whereas I'm interested in what how law comes about. What does it mean and how does that provide support or undergird economics? Yeah, no, I think that comes through in the book a lot. So the property species, mine, yours, and the human mind. So what's the capsule version? Well, my thesis is on the first page of chapter one is that property is a universal, a uniquely human custom. And every one of those words is important. Uh, I am speaking to biologists in the sense that... Um, Humans are the only species that have property. So name your other animal that you think might have property. I'm going to argue that that's um, different in a very important way from what humans are doing with things and what we would call property. But at the same time, I'm going to make, sh I, I want to argue that it's, um, it's a custom in the sense that we have to learn this and it could differ in its forms from society. So there's something universal to all human beings and only human beings, but the form it takes could be very different. And so the people who are concerned about that different cultures may not have property or some sort, I'm arguing you will have it, but 
and every society will, will use it in some way, but the what things count as property and how you go about looking at property could be very, very different. And that set of things mm-hmm. could be very small for some people and some groups of people and very large for others. I feel like anytime I've ever heard someone claim that some human societies don't have property, it seems to boil down to something much more narrow, like that they don't practice widespread land ownership. If you drill down to personal artifacts and tools and things like that, does are there any serious sociologists or anthropologists that would claim that some human societies don't have property norms? No, and that is distinction. I think there's a modern sense where we think property and the first thing we think about is land or buildings. And then we think, well, not everyone has property and land. And that's true. And so, right, if you drill down to tools, then I'm pretty sure people are not going to disagree that, oh, all human societies have property in some tools. And is that just a, is that just an artifact of the the fact that land is not valuable in the city? Like we don't have m- many property norms in like air or the ocean. Maybe we have some, but it's it doesn't play the same economic role for us as you could imagine a, a seafaring society where it did or an airfaring society where it did. And, and hunt, hunter-gatherers that are nomadic are going to see land differently than a settled civilization. Yeah, exactly. It depends on what the people do and what their resources and, and, and where they live. And, and so that's what the problem that needs to be. Problem, property is a problem that's needs to be solved locally. And so that's why if you're a hunter-gatherer society, you're, you're not going to stay placed in land. There's no reason to, to make claims in property in the same way. You mentioned your your thesis, and that, like you said, every word in there is um, carefully chosen. I just was wondering if we could kind of go through bit by bit and dive into it in a little bit more detail. But But to start with, it's probably worth saying what you mean by property, because you you have some, you know, it's obviously there is something common with the way you talk about property and the way other people talk about it. But you take a particular approach in your book. So I mean that it is someone can say about something, this is mine, that no one else can say that this thing is mine. And other people can know that what I say about this thing is true. So it's a speech act kind of from beginning to end. And it involves then when people can say that and not say those kind of make those kind of claims. And and so is you also have to learn that then from each generation. And so I I learn from when I'm a kid that when I go to a grocery store, I can't pick something off the shelf and call it mine. and, and that's what I internalize that feedback from from parents. And then we learn when we can make those claims and when we can't make those claims. So I'll derail us a little bit more. And I think I have an idea of how you're going to respond to this. Um, but what, is, what does it mean to say that something's mine? Or how, does, how, how would one know whether such a statement was true? So they've, they've learned from experience. So they've learned from their mentors when those circumstances are met. And then there are people around them because they know that's true, that they would agree with them. And so part of that comes from understanding that there are things about which I can say this is mine, and there are things about which you can say this is mine. And those two things are tied uh, in the sense of that if I want you to respect my claims and we're equals, you're going to have to expect, I want to have to respect your claims. 
And so that's how we know um, from experience when those claims are true. If I was to say this thing is mine, it's going to involve something like my intention to use something exclusively or a warning that I might tell you to stop it or defend its use or something like that. I was early on really influenced by Bob Ellickson's work on whaling norms and understanding how property works. So whalers all know they're out in the open sea in, you know, in the 18th and 19th century. And so they all kind of have a sense of how it works. And they're going to figure out making claims of who gets that particular whale um, when, they're, when they're hunting it. And so they, if, if you're whaling off the coast of the North Atlantic, the prey were right whales because they were the right whale to go hunting. They were baleen. They didn't sink when they died and they just, they floated, they swum near the surface. So they're just, they were sitting ducks in it to mix my metaphors of uh, <laughs> there. And so it's the first harpoon that got in the, attached to the whale and attached to your boat. No one else went after it because they all recognized there are all bunch, there are a whole bunch of whales out there. So we're just going to take our, put our harpoon in it and, and, um, and attach to the boat. And so that was that worked well, but he noticed that when whaling moved off the coast of North America, the prey were different. The prey were sperm whales, which have teeth, and they will fight back and they will even dive when they're harpooned and take the boat with them. And so they evolved the, the rule for determining who gets to claim a whale as, as theirs. And that is if your harpoon was in the whale and attached to a, a drogue to keep it from diving and you were in pursuit of it, it was your whale. And so they learned that from their experience of what worked and didn't work. And they recognized it um, that, oh, well, if you're respecting that whale as yours, then you'll respect this one over here when I take this one as, as mine. And so it, it was to, basically to maintain the peace among this so that they could maximize their efforts towards collecting the, the whale oil. I just wanted to clarify what, what we're talking about when we talk about property. Sounds like there's a lot of diversity, but it involves saying something that's mine in a way that's reciprocal. You say that all humans have property in things. Do you mean it's found in every society or literally every human being? In, in every society, there is some group of things, some set of things about which someone can say, this is mine. And in every society, in every language, you can say, this is mine. And it means the same thing in the sense of you can translate this into whatever language you want, and you can, can translate mine into whatever language you want to convey that same basic state. There's no, and, there's no difficulty in translating those concepts right. across any known language. Exactly. Uh, and so the linguists have, who have, have studied this have found it in you know, very diverse languages, and they are hypothesizing, and I think they have good reason to believe that this would be true for all human languages of all time. There wouldn't be any reason why that would not be the case. And so it's that ability to universally say this is mine that you can communicate across any two individuals on the planet if you can find that way to communicate that. And so that's why I would argue all human beings have it. We have those, those prime abstract concepts kind of built into who we are as a species that you can bring out at any time. Now, when and how you do that, that could be different. That could lead to mis 
people not understanding that and having having um, misunderstandings of when you can make those claims. Uh, and that's the part that needs to be worked out. But you could communicate the idea of this is mine. And the question is whether that people agree with you or not. Only humans have property in things. So this is where you're butting up against maybe biologists or primatologists. Animals use, make use of simple tools or even sometimes compound tools. They make nests. They defend territory. So tell us why those aren't examples of property. So the, the, the temptation is in comparing humans and non-humans is that we're going to look at the same effects. So if you have a dog has a toy and it's in its mouth, you're trying to pull it out. They're going to resist in the same way that any two-year-old who has their toy in their hand is going to resist trying to pull, pulling it out. And that's, and I'm arguing that's not property and the effect of what we want to resist being dispossessed. What I argue is that we want to think about property and its origin. How is it that I think and perceive the world is different than I would argue any dog or any other non-human things? And more importantly, about the things about which we will do this. So when we make common claims of humans and non-humans in a property and you look at territory, I, I you know lots of animals have territory. Uh, humans have territory. But is that what is the foundation of property? I'd argue no, because we want to look at, at things, basically movable things. And we do things in the world differently. Like, well, I guess it's not quite showing up here with this blurry thing, uh, with, with like uh, my phone. And we perceive those things differently. And so I want to get away from looking at territory, looking at mates, you know, and it's true, you know, baboons have different harems and the males will not go after the females in another harem. Presumably if they did, it would create a fight. So they kind of, they recognize those females in, in the biology language as, as property. But again, that's all built into their biology of, of how their social structures are organized and to recognize mates and not as our potential mates as ones that cause fights if I were to try to claim it. And also lastly, food. And food is, you know, you're in the moment, you have your food, you want to defend it, you, it makes you less fit if somebody tries to take it from you. So all of those things I'm arguing humans would also have as well. But what other non-humans don't real about think about is things that persist into the future. And that is a tools of some sort that I've invested or like a spear, taking, taking a shaft, putting a point, gluing it together. So you have a haft, you have a handle for it. That is a different kind of thing that is not like food because it has a future. Because when I'm done, it's still going to be around for someone to use at another point in time. And that is what you don't see in any other animals. Uh, so they may make, make tools. But when the chimpanzee's done with its hammer and anvil tools and put it down, they could care less if another hand one picks it up and uses it. And same thing with any kind of these sticks that are used to withdraw food. But we do something different. When I have a spear and I've made this thing and I put it down, I'm still going to have a claim to that in a way that when other people come up to it, and that's different. Why? Because I argue we perceive the very thing itself as different. It's mine. And that one over there is yours. I, un I understand, I think, some of the examples you gave and why, why 
there's a pretty sharp distinction between human property customs. The mate example is maybe the most morally fraught, but it seems like maybe the closest. I'm, I don't know if I'm fully understanding why that wouldn't be considered a property norm, um, you know, putting aside the obvious moral issues there. The important part is in the origins of thinking about property is that I abstract the thing itself with a particular quality. And so I don't need to be taught that a chimp, a baboon doesn't have to be taught that to recognize like another mate, another baboon says, look, don't go after females in another harem. <laughs> they don't have to learn that from there. It's built into to baboon society. It's a simple the, cause and effect or just exactly. or just an instinct like, you know, someone attacks me when I do that. If I go into this other baboon's territory right. or try to take his mate. Right. Perceiving, perceiving this mate as part of a group or not part of the group is pure association. I'm arguing calling something property in humans is an abstract process that has this idea of the thing itself has a particular quality to it. So let me ask you this. What do you, what do you think, what would it look like for a species to like start making those first timid steps into the world of property norms? So the key is you would have to have some kind of vocalization to distinguish this is mine and that is yours. And so you would have, it, it's, it's a speech act that, that, that gives abstract properties to the very thing itself. And all you have to do is basically say it. <laughs> so, or some, some kind, it doesn't have just like symbolic communication broadly, right? Right, right. And, that, and so what do I mean by that? I compare it to so like a a, a a mother bear and her cubs. You come across it, she's gonna growl at you, and, yes. and in which case you're in trouble. And, and, and she doesn't want you to get between to, to to that cub. But that growling is not telling me this is mine. That growling is a natural biological response of I'm protecting my young. And I'm going to try to scare you away or I'll attack you myself. That isn't making a claim of this is mine. But more importantly, no bear is going to go around and say to me, this is yours. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and no, if that's what you would be looking for another animal, that reciprocal understanding that some things are mine and other things are yours. And so property is property because you have both of those things. You have to have mine and you have to have yours. I suppose you could have a prop a species that had property, but in a very narrow sense, like maybe only shared with, uh, you know, close kin networks. I mean, prop is that probably how property norms started in humans and like closer kin networks, and then starting to expand outwards? Or I don't know. This I guess that's a, the bigger question is, you know, what are the what are the uh, kind of Paleolithic uh, prerequisites? for humans to, to gain this norm. You, you said, you know, symbolic communication of some, some kind, um, I guess having a, having a brain big enough to formulate that. I don't know what else. Well, I would, I argue in the book that it's this idea of abstract thought is necessary to make, to make that work. And, and so you, when do you start seeing trade? You don't see starting trade 
until 100,000 years ago, do you start seeing seashells move and, and things like tools being moved that are way too far from the coast and their point of origin for that to be, you know, for the tribe to go grab it and take it back. And it property's got to gotta predate trade, right? I think it probably happens right around the same time, <laughs> right? So okay. in the sense of once you get this abstract idea of, of mine, it's not that hard to create yours. Uh, and, and because now you just say this, you can say this is yours. And so, um, so mine, you know, abstract thought certainly came first because you also have this have to have this idea of true to the concept associated with words because property is a, a is a in its origins an oral claim it, it's something that's studying words and you have to be able to verify those words but once you have true in that abstract sense then you can get to mine and then the property's off to off to the races. And I'd agree, it probably starts with the group, but how do you get groups to trade who don't even speak the same language? You have minds that I can understand in the world in the same way. And so there are many examples of groups of people who don't, can't speak the same language, but they can still trade. They, the, the stories of people coming with ships onto the shore, putting stuff down. People come And they're from trading up. within an hour. Yes. And, and then they move stuff around to agree on how much stuff they're putting in to trade this this pile for that pile. Uh, and none of them have to say anything about they're not actually putting into words. They're just implying. And we all know each other's thoughts that I can understand this pile is going to be yours and this pile is going to be mine. Can you say something about why it would why the custom would arise just because we have the capacity? Well, so. That gets into the questions of where did the symbolic thought come from? And that's quite con contentious among linguists uh, about that, that theory. I am partial to the one that asks the question in terms of what would be the evolutionary pressures to get those first concepts that would be separate, separated from the here and now, so from a pure association. So like you teach your dog things, they, it's all association, right? Thing, this thing to tie to that thing. And even some really smart dogs can, you can utter out a new, a new vocalization and they can pick out, well, it must not be one of these things. It must be the one that doesn't have a prior association. So, you know, there's, a, but it's all at its root, still road associations. And so that is the pressure that somehow, what could we do to get that? And so uh, this linguist, uh, Derek Bickerton, argues that food in humans is collected in thinking about things that are not right in front of your eyes, not right here, right now. And there's really only three animals that we are for sure know they communicate outside the here and now about food. Ants, who lay little ferrum trails that kind of point you pinpoint the success of ants in the direction of where they get food and bees who do little uh, um, dances, waggle dances to point the other bees in the direction of where to go get pollen. And so you, where, what is it in human history that might be the sense of getting food that's outside right here, right now. And his example is you go back 2 million years and you see prior to that, early hominins going around, knocking on bones and 
cracking them open to get the marrow inside. But big cats have gotten to it first, and then the little hominins are breaking things open. So the claw marks are on, on, on there first. But then something switches. In some groups, you see that the hominins are getting to the bones first, and then the cats. Now, the hominins don't have claws. They don't have big teeth. So somehow they're working together to keep these cats away to get to these dead carcasses so they can scavenge them. And his argument is, well, in order to kind of convince your group to go in that direction, see the other dead carcass, you have to be able to communicate ideas outside right here in front of you. Let's go around the hill over there. There's a dead one over there. And so that's his kind of theory of what would food, searching for food outside the here and now becoming your specialty would be that pressure to get those first concepts off the ground. The fourth chunk in your, in your thesis that we brought up earlier is that property rests on custom, not rights. So the modern world really wants to explain property, most things in terms of rights. And if you're looking up to its origins of where properties come right, you have to go to something that's prior to, I would argue, big, big political organizations, uh, millions of tens of thousands of people all trying to live together. That concept of rights has to somehow, we want to go back and say, what is it about all human beings, even the ones who didn't have big polys, who lived in groups of you know, a few thousand or a few hundred, what kind of ideas would make property get off the ground there? And this is important because um, in non-humans, again, anything dealing with stuff um, can be socially taught. But most of the stuff that we think about property among non-humans is going to be instinctual. It's going to be built into their genes. But primates are the only kind of order of, of animals that tends to use tools a lot and very flexibly. And tool use is going to be that, I think, the really the interesting way to get into why humans have property because primates teach the prior generation how to use tools. So there's that social part uh, that I think is important to understanding custom, that it has to be taught. And so, um, and lots of animals do this. So like, you know, like dolphins will teach their calves how to go forage for food and different dolphins groups do it differently. Um, so it's not unique to teach young how to acquire stuff, but it is gonna be important for what we call property that what we do is we teach our young how not to get stuff. And that's different. Yeah. So. The dolphin doesn't teach them how not to. They only teach you how to. <laughs> the, yeah, you, the, you, you talk a lot about it. Kids don't need to be taught to say, this is mine. Give me that. I had it. It's mine. It looks like mine. So it's mine. It's all the, re it's all the ways not to take things they have to learn. And it's abstract, right? So I have to learn the abstract when I can't take something. Well, in a grocery store, I learn, oh, I can't take stuff here. But if I'm out on the seashore, I can pick up the shell. Mm -hmm. And we learn that, oh, these are whole, totally different situations. Uh, one thing is a created thing. Another thing is just lying there in, in, in nature. And, I, and we learn those categories without being explicitly taught those things. And we, we learn from our parents and, oh, 
abstract things that people have made, maybe I can't just take those things. So the language of rights, is part of this a semantic issue? I mean, you talk about uh, the custom of property predating large polities and governments and stuff, and certainly that's a common way that people use the word rights, but there's certainly a tradition that talks about rights as a moral category, not tied to, you know, the whole natural rights tradition is distinguishing between man-made and God-made laws, some other kind of rights, without taking a position on that. Do you, do you object to that use of property rights as a term? Well, rights carries with it a whole lot of very Western ideals that I would argue might not be universal to all humankind. Mm-hmm. And so it could be as a concept in the West, we think about what people do as we set up rights about how to act and to not to act. But I wouldn't argue that's how people universally would think about it. That if you go to talk to the different groups of people in Australia uh, or different people in South America, that they would think of, they would have the notion of rights in the same way that we would. And so, but what you would see this common that every generation of humans are going to teach their young how not to get stuff. And that's the common part. So I would argue rights builds on top of this customary way of thinking about property. Are those two things separable? Like on the one hand, what is anthropologically common to all peoples in the way they think and talk about property? And there's some answer to that question. And then I think the rights question is maybe, you know, it's that's less in the domain of anthropology and moral philosophy. And maybe it is Western, but certainly the people who espouse it are going to say, well, you know, tough luck, it happens to be true. And, and I believe in universal human rights for this reason. Are you just saying, are you just not kind of weighing in on that question or, or are you objecting to it in some, for some reason? I would object to people making claims that all human beings think about terms of, um, say, for example, right and wrong. Because right and wrong carry with them a very Anglo sense of how to think about the world. <laughs> Right is different than good in the sense of you can also, it can also be justified as good. And, and wrong can be, you can't justify it as good. Whereas doing good and doing bad, that can be universalized without this need to quote justify it. And that's, I think right and wrong is carries with it a presumption that it can be justified. We're not, you could see how not all human groups would need to have, have to justify doing good and doing bad. Uh, that they, that, that would be part of the concept. And so I, so that's the sense I want to, I want to, if I want to make this claim of human universality, I need to be sensitive to all human groups and the abstract categories that they work with. And not all of them are going to work with rights and wrongs. The right, the West does. Can we back up a little bit about human evolution? You were talking about property developing. What's your best guess looking at the the fossil records and whatever about when property developed? And is there any sense that it might have developed independently in different hominid species or developed, fell away, and then redeveloped or almost developed? So I would, I mean, I went to the Natural History Museum's um, section on human ancestors and just the sheer number of different species that predates even Homo, but if, you know, among the home, genus Homo, 
the number of different ones is just amazing. Um, I, I would not be surprised that you could get the core elements of abstract thought in more than just homo sapiens. Um, and and I, I think the best evidence would be homo heidelbergensis because they are pretty good evidence that they are making compound tools. So they are making spears 400 to 500,000 years ago. And that requires taking this piece, taking a point, gluing it together with the right kind of glue. Making glue doesn't, isn't easy. Uh, some experimental anthropologists have gone through the process of trying to figure out how to make this glue. And you can't just throw any sets of red ochre together to make the glue. It's got to be done a particular ochre in a particular way with right temperatures, which tells you there's a lot of teaching going on and, and a, a lot, lot of, of trial abstract, and error and a lot of abstract ideas of sticky, <laughs> right? Stickiness, uh, all those kind of things in order to put together. So that means you have the possibility of, of kind of property ideas in their nations, nations, but it's not clear that that would be, um, you would have the abstract category of mind yet. Um, and that might take, you know, fully symbolic human beings for that to come about. So I, I think that abstract notion of mind, the abstract notion of true, the abstract notion of say, I can say this is mine, probably isn't any other species. Uh, but prior homo, homo prior to homo sapiens, you had a lot of hominins doing all those compact com compound tool things that gets it ready to go. Um, so I'm ready, I'm prepared to go back about 500,000 years because you see that beginning of compound thought, compound tools, and therefore you got abstract thought. But it's pretty well established that full symbolic human beings is not gonna come to at least 100,000 years. And, and it, that's right at the same time we start seeing trade. <laughs> long distance trade. So it, it, the timing is quite uh, coincidental. It seems to me like they might happen, rel you know, in the big, based on our time scale simultaneously, but it seems like property would have to, property norms would have to come first in order to be able to say, let's swap something. Uh, but it might have come, you know, a thousand years earlier or what you gave this range 500,000 to 100,000 years ago is kind of where you're pegging it, it probably. Yes. Yes, but your, your intuition, though, I think is right. In order to get, and I think Adam Smith recognized this. Uh, he recognized uh, that you don't see any other animals say, this is mine, that yours. And that the whole meaning of any, he says, give me that which you want and you shall have what I, I give me that which I want and you shall have what you want is the meaning of every such offer. That implies you say this is mine to this thing before and then I get to say it afterwards and vice versa for the thing we're trading. And so you got to have that notion of mine and yours before you get to the trade, because what's true of most species is you either take it and you fight for it, or you don't try. To, you don't. You don't get it in any. You don't get any the other thing. Well, and so, another reason it seems like it might need to be property would need to predate trade. Not just. I mean, there's that reason, but beyond the concept of mine and yours, wouldn't you also need to have at least the rudiments of social norms or institutions, not in terms of big states, but such that you would be confident that there's any point to trading, that it's yes. not just going to be taken right back to you from you or something like that. Well, and so there are many customs about setting up 
that basically we're at peace. <laughs> we're not at war. And then after those customs, that's when they go trade. <laughs> and, and so it's, and if you refuse to go through the custom, that's basically saying we're declaring war. <laughs> there will be no trade. <laughs> so the and, peaceful commerce thesis is a 500,000 years old. Ah, uh, <laughs> I think I would push that only back to homo sapiens. Um, okay. But but you can imagine how long it's going to take, even if you just start to get the first concepts detached from the here and now, how long it's going to take before that gets extended to a new, uh, new abstract concept, before you kind of get that whole portfolio to get trade off the ground. Now, I mean, we're also limited by stuff that survives, right? And so when we say yeah. trade started 100,000 years ago, it's because the onyx, the onyx doesn't break down and the seashells that have the little holes in them uh, don't don't break down whereas food all that stuff that we might have been trading kind of goes away does it so, make sense to think that because woodworking or things like that maybe is easier than stonework that that that's definitely got to be an upper bound there's got to be wooden tools or, or something right. that predate and obviously don't survive yeah so like our chewing hand axe is famous because it doesn't change for like a million years. <laughs> it and changes then when it, slower than human skeletons. Yeah, exactly. And then the, then it slows, you know, changed slightly and there's this, this innovation, but then it doesn't change. And there also seems to be evidence that it's just like piles of them. So they're, that those hominins are more like birds. They're just making nests because it's kind of just as built into what we do. And maybe yeah. there's a little bit of teaching from one generation about how to, to, to shape, it, shape it. But really getting kind of um, full-fledged tools becoming property, you're probably not going to get that until you get to the compound tools that, that take a special skill in attaching these things in three distinct pieces together. Your book made me think of property and property norms almost as like this mystical magic trick that the human species was able to pull off like, Animals, all animals and plants, for that matter, have to incorporate the material of their environment to to live and thrive in, in any sense through food or nutrition or something. And they use, you know, they use food and other materials or small tools to kind of expand the, themselves or to, in, uh, you know, make their the ongoing project of their life more complex and grand. And then through our mental faculties were able to kind of extend that trick beyond the limits of our physical body. And through some mutual understanding, that's able to get pretty extensive because if, if you know, humans didn't mutually respect each other's ability to do that, you would, I don't know, at most just have tiny little tribes or br bright hermits who occasionally made a hand ax. Uh, but it's obviously gotten so much further than that. I don't know. Do, do you think about property at all in those or is that too well, grand? I think part of what drove me to write the book was I think it's very mystical and magical the way that kind of biologists think about it, like that all these other animals are just a little bit different than human beings. Then how is it that um, we get trade of things like there's we're the only species that trades one thing for another thing routinely. That's uh, Matt Ridley's hypothesis. That's Adam Smith's hypothesis. And, um, and, and so how is it that you get to that when, I mean, I work with primatologists, they have tried their hardest to get chimpanzees to trade stuff and they won't. <laughs> and they know that they- That surprised they, me I, I, when I read that in your book. 
I've, I've wondered about that often. Why don't, you know, has no one ever tried little experiments on an island to get a culture of bonobos or something to make fire or to, to, you know, do very simple primitive civilizational things. And I'm sure they have. They can't get the, and I, and I, what's the explanation? Because they don't think outside the here and now they can only be right here in the present. And to get trade off the ground, you have to think about the future and think about the world after the stuff has been traded. You have to think about it. This thing is out of mine. I don't call this mine. And now you call it yours. And I call the other thing mine. And we have to get over being right here, wanting to satisfy what I want right now. And that's a huge leap. And so I think symbolic thought is that spark that no longer makes it magical. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we can do this. Um, and that's, I think that's what's missed when we try to say, oh, yeah, every all these other animals have property too. But they misses the very uh, amazing things that we do with things. And we do it so easily. And our children pick it up so quickly. The, the three kind of phrases you use frequently as like the core of property, I can say about this thing that it's mine. Uh, other people know that it's true and no one else can say that it's mine. I feel like there's a there's a fourth phrase that I hear sometimes. Tell me where it fits in. When I say that something's mine, other people understand it is right that it is mine. Or is that the same thing as them understanding, knowing that it's true? Do you mean by right, do you mean correct or do you mean moral? Uh, so the, the fourth part is is how it gets implemented. So, um, so when I make the claim and other people can know it's true, um, the kind of moral evaluation about that comes secondary. So my point is all those three components have to come first. And okay. then within your community, uh, based upon the thing itself and the context, we're now going to make moral judgments about those claims as well. That was that's a good lead into my next question was if I say about something, this thing is mine, how do I or anyone know if I have good reasons to say that? And is there anything sem- somewhat general you can say about that? Or is that too philosophical of a question? No, how do we know? Um, that's what makes property a custom. It has it's it has to be taught to us and we've accumulated those um, those reasons from our history uh we we've we've learned it from our parents we've learned it from going on the school school grounds with learning how to settle conflicts there with with people our own age uh but we have it in our experience is how to when we consider it to be uh morally good and when it be morally wrong and so it has to be taught and, 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 but also it means it's flexible so that when we find some new situation, we can apply the concept there. Well, let me, let me put it a different way. Your book is very, very multidisciplinary. It's very impressive. And it gave me a headache thinking about what you had to go through. You tend to take a light touch in terms of moralizing or, or making grand, like moral underpinnings of property. You, you kind of gesture at the Douglases, Douglas Rasmussen and Den Oil. <laughs> As, as maybe representing morally how you think about property or what it is or how it's justified or what it does. Maybe that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, what, all, what are the customs or the history? 
you know, pointing towards in terms of giving us good reasons to favor some property norms over others? Well, I, I want people, so I think there are people who are suspect of property, that somehow there's something suspicious about it, that I want to, I want to, if we think about it biologically, we think about it in terms of, uh, of human universals that could put people at ease, that there's something that, 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 that there's, there could be some deep history and value to this idea, but also that just because uh, being a property doesn't mean what we do with it in the name of property is morally good. Sure, <laughs> and, certainly. And so I, I, so I will leave it. I kind of want to leave the idea of when we and how we make these moral claims about property is a different project. That I want to. Okay. I want to figure out how, where it comes from and and give a story, a synthetic story that reaches beyond what how people currently think about it. Um, but then leave it to particular circumstances when we make these claims to how we would evaluate it as morally good uh, application of property or not. I think I found your book because I was looking for someone to to make a modern, more empirical and grounded in current scientific understanding attempt at John Locke's project in describing and grounding the nature of property. You know, I hope it's not blowing too much smoke to say I'm, I was very happy what I found. Do you, are, are you the are you the modern John Locke? Or are there other people engaging in this kind of project? I've, it was surprisingly difficult to find a book that answered or tried to explore this question, I don't know, in both a philosophical and a scientific way. Well, that's what I enjoy doing. I, I actually, kind of tying back to how we started the conversation as experimentalist, I ran this experiment and uh, thought it was about property rights. And I was surprised about what happened. And I said, well, how can philosophy maybe help me make sense of what I'm seeing in my experiments? And so I really was thinking, well, philosophy kind of gives you these basic ideas of how things work. And I want to tie it to what am I observing? What are the facts on the ground? And can I organize those things together? And, And so that. I think that's different. I don't think philosophers are feel constrained by facts sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. I want to give them a few facts to be constrained by. But I also think that um, economists in particular about the facts we think about property are too philosophically free. Um, and we need to we need to get a little more rigorous about thinking about it in that way. So um, yeah, I I was directed, I mean, once I thought thought I needed to look at some philosophical background on property. Of course, Locke is one that everyone starts with. Everyone knows if you're going to get any introduction to property, you get it from Locke. Um, So I had to read that. And um, it seemed that there's an intuition to how he works that seems to work really broadly. And so all the, uh, and I guess that's been suspect, you know, there are famous uh, philosophers and legal scholars who make fun of him for what he's doing there. But I, there's, but you talk to anyone and you just talk, what is Locke's theory of property? And you tell them, they're like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> it, there's something intuitive about working with something that people say, yeah, that's, that's property. Um, and I wanted to give some kind of deeper psychological understanding of how, how that connection works. And so it's not kind of labor mixing it. I think I can go back further in time. It's not just labor. It's, um, it's this abstract idea of mine that 
gets put inside the thing that gets at what Locke is talking about. What's the weakest part of your argument and what keeps you up at night about your book about that you feel like could be a little stronger or where there are objections that you wish you had a better pithier comeback for? Well, I don't have good evidence beyond kind of Anglo, Latin, and French, which I don't know any French, but kind of just what I've read about it, basically Western evidence of how people talk about things that they put property inside the thing in their, in their, in their minds. Uh, I think it really, I really could, now I've had some hints that people have told me that, oh yeah, if you look at the particles in Japanese, they're doing that same kind of work. But um, I, so I think it really could use more of um, looking at con- uh, languages outside the ones I know <laughs> and, and looked at that could flesh these ideas out. Now, um, so that's kind of a major concern I want to have. Now, I think I, I talk about in the book, there's a little bit of an out that when I say if property is custom and it's conventionalized, it can be conventionalized in language differently. And so that doesn't mean that you're going to be directly seeing the in-ness in the language of every human community. You're talking about the, the old English yeah. uh, practice of saying, you know, I have a property in something. Right. That's how John Locke talks right. about it. Okay. So you might not find the inness in every single language, but I think you still should have some sense of how people work with stuff um, to get a sense that they think of it being contained um, in the thing. But I don't know that. I've only gone so far with that. So I think that's a that's a weak. It's a it's something that's really open. I don't know if you're familiar hard. with um, David Friedman with his book legal systems very different from ours. It's it's reminding me of some some somewhat of what you're talking about. It might have some bearing on that. Each chapter is kind of a a review of a different legal system wildly different from like the okay. Anglo-American one. That could have some bearing. He's a law and econ guy. I think we should wrap up here in just a second, but I wanted to ask if you have uh any recommendations for a book, an author, an article that you think sheds light on this topic in addition to your own. If you're interested in kind of, we, because we talked a little bit about um, Anglo-centric uh, thinking in science, uh, I would recommend um, Anna Wiersbeck's uh, book, Imprisoned by English, or, or she has another word, a book called, um, I can't remember the title now. Well, if you email it to me, I'll put it on the show notes page. But so... If you're interested in just how, as English becomes the language of science, we tend to want to think through the world through Anglo ideas. And she gives us pause to think about how can we universalize what our our scientific inquiry is to not just be a Western way of thinking about things. Because those concepts come with a whole lot of other ideals that we take for granted as I mentioned with right and wrong. And so in her, in her book, English on English customs, um, she talks about fair. And I think that would be the one that people might be interested in how you can't translate the concept of fair one-to-one into any other language. Uh, and so, and, and so she's saying, look, that doesn't mean that other societies can't think with the concept of fair, but there, that means we have an opportunity to understand what is the, what is the constellation of ideas all around fairness that make it unique from justice? 
or equality. And so I, she, that kind of work I think would be very interesting. There, I, I, I can also send, there was um, a law professor at Indiana, um, just had a, a, he's very much interested in kind of, kind of language of, we apply these concepts of property to now ideas and how we can do that um, beyond just physical things. And, and I thought that was real intriguing. It just came out in the law review, but I can't, don't remember where it is, but I, I can, I'll find those things. What's, what's next for you? Are you working on any new projects? I am interested in kind of a sequel to this book and my prior book with Vernon Smith called Humanomics, Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations for the 21st Century. A, a, a sequel to both of these books in the sense of I want to expand how we understand economics through conduct, which means it's not just behavior, but there's actual moral valuations about what we do and how to understand those things. And, and so I want to make basically our actions, both the cause and effect of why we do them and do that in a, in a, I want to try to do it in a rigorous way and also a way that is universally human. So I want to take these ideas that are in concepts that are in every human society and then build how we deal with conduct and how we, uh, and how we interact with each other. So that's my kind of broad idea. Um, I'm kind of spending this semester fleshing it out and trying to get more specific. So probably too early to put a timeline on that. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I still need to have the, the core idea yet. I just know that I, I have related books. I want to use um, John Searle's book about um, how um, making sense of, of social institutions I want to, there's a book called David Haig's um, From Darwin to Derrida, where he he looks at how molecular geneticists and evolutionary biologists can't talk to each other. They really don't like each other. And then he's proposing a solution in, about uh, an evolutionary model that helps to understand that. And I want to apply that basically to conduct in humans and use that same kind of model and kind of put that together in a way that I can then I think augments the way we think about game theory, uh, which I think is a little too narrow. Um, but I also think about how we have purposes uh, in life that seems to be left out of economics. You want to say where people can find you? Oh, I am on I'm on Twitter at Bart Wilson, and my website is bartjwilson.com. Awesome, Bart. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. That's Bart Wilson. His book is The Property Species, Mine, Yours, and the Human Mind. It's an amazing book. Please buy it. Please read it. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to Ideas Having Sex and follow on Twitter at Ideas Having Sex. That's with two X's. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thank you for listening.